I'm reminded of um, when I really first learnt about the generosity of practice and that was, gosh, I feel like I need my sunglasses. <laughs> um, I um, was, I mentioned I was at Plum Village. It, um, it was, I think, 1990, the first time I visited, 1994 or something like that, four or five. And we, um, twice a week, we had uh, meals where the, um, the Sangha, the ordained Sangha, the men who lived in one place and the woman in another and the lay people all came together and after Thai's talk in the morning, we would eat. And so first, um, first it was the, um, the, the um, monks that would um, serve themselves food, and um, then it was the nuns, and then it was the, those who had um, taken the precepts with Thai and were wearing these brown jackets, and then it was people like me ordinary lay people. And um, by often by the time that um, I got to the serving tables, there was not a lot of food left, and plus it was cold. And you all know how I hate cold. <laughs> so, um, so I was just like, well, then there's no point in standing around if I know that's what's going to happen You know, every time we have one of these special meals. And then, um, so I, I would, the bell would ring and I would go off to my room or, you know, faff around or do something. And then finally, when everyone else had gone through the line, I would come and serve myself. And um, so one Dharma talk, Thai talked about the fact that um, there were some of us who were not waiting in line for uh, the 20 minutes while everyone else was serving ourselves, but we were coming late. And he said um, that um, the waiting in line wasn't just about waiting in line. It was the gift of giving your mindfulness and your presence to someone else while they were waiting in line. And that we really needed each other um, to remind each other to be mindful. And so I took it as my practice to uh, challenge my aversion and distaste um, and wait in line for 20 minutes while everyone else was being served um, to serve out my lunch. And it wasn't so much, um, I came to see in that practice that it actually wasn't so much about the food or waiting in line, but it really was beginning to appreciate that invitation that Thai gave more and more deeply to see the profound gift that we give each other by our practice, the profound gift we give each other by turning up, the profound gift we give each other by making the effort. In fact, the Buddha said in talking about generosity, he said that the greatest gift we can give each other, and uh, this is so interesting, uh, when I first read it in, um, early on in my practice, um, 
because I never would have thought of it then, that it wasn't huge amounts of money if any of us here happened to have millions of dollars, that that wouldn't be the greatest gift, nor if any of us here happened to be royalty and had exquisite jewels or, you know, happened to be like Ted Turner and have thousands of acres in Montana and radio shows or TV shows or whatever, just different ways of thinking about um, wealth. He said the greatest gift that we could give each other was the practice of the five precepts. To begin with, to give each other that fearlessness that each one of us here knows that everyone else in this room is, has and is undertaking the training not to hurt or not to steal, not to hurt through sexuality, that it is a profound and beautiful gift and that that gift that we give each other deepens as we dedicate ourselves to this path so that we give each other more undivided or love that isn't separated or decided through preference. That is such a profound gift. I remember the incredible suffering that used to go on in school around who was popular and who wasn't. I mean, we still go through that now, but you know, now we have a bit more wisdom to work with it. But then, do you remember the agony of whether you were going to be chosen for the team or not? You know, the sports teams, the agony of whether you were going to be invited to a party or not, the agony of if you were left out. It was really huge. And the gift that we give each other is this training we're undertaking to include everyone in our hearts, to open beyond what we like or what we don't like, to include every being. It, it, is, a, it is a profound gift because it creates the support for safety. It allows us, each of us, to feel that we are visible in some way to each other. That doesn't mean we don't have likes and dislikes. Of course we have likes and dislikes. But we feel called through the practice of generosity to challenge those likes and dislikes when they begin to affect our behavior so that we tend to move someone to the periphery of our heart, you know? It's like, oh, I don't like his style, you know, and, and he irritates me. And so we move that person to the periphery of our heart. And this practice is so beautiful because it invites us to challenge that. And that's, and that's work. And the practice of generosity in challenging that is that we are asking ourselves, to look for what is beautiful and strong in each person and being so that we feel moved in our generosity and our love to give them expression. 
so that we are challenging not only that closure of heart inside of ourselves, but in a way we're challenging it then for our whole community so that we more and more feel the blessings of this community. I mean, I know already because I've talked with many of you and also because I know the history that this community has gone through some challenges. But really, when we think of our efforts and when we think of our practice and we think of the incredible gifts we give through our practice and the training of the precepts, this gift of fearlessness, the gift of challenging our hearts. The, cha the difficulties in this community go nowhere near the challenges that happen in communities that don't have a practice. Nowhere near. It's like incredible what actually is happening in this community because we know what's happening in communities that don't have a practice. We know that they're at war. There is war all around the world. War where people are, are making bombs and carrying them and not only blowing themselves up, but blowing innocent citizens up. So when we see that and then we come back and reflect on it, we think to ourselves, um, wow. I, I really begin to see the profound blessing that my practice gives my community. I tell you, I would have died but for the friendships. The doctors had just about given up. Forget it for having any will to live. I can't begin to describe the despair. Beyond the relentless physical pain, there was this utter emptiness of heart and soul. Each morning felt like waking up in hell. Can you understand that? Every morning feeling that way, like it was the first time. And yet people came and called and cared and stayed and each gesture came to feel almost miraculous to me. And there were moments when I would say, you just don't know what this means to me. And they didn't. They couldn't or wouldn't. Isn't that wild? They really didn't see it. They really didn't recognize just how much their ordinary expressions of love would do for me. On the one hand, I thought it was wonderful that they wouldn't make a big deal out of something that seemed so simple for them, just showing up. On the other hand, I wanted to shake them and say, do you know how beautiful you are? Won't you see? As if they were angels who had forgotten. And I think of us too sometimes as angels who have forgotten because we all work so hard in our own practice internally and forget the incredible gift that brings to everyone else in the community. As someone who is the recipient of your friendship, 
I can only say that I feel deeply moved and deeply appreciative of the gifts of your practice and your friendship and of your commitment and of the many times you have showed up. Um, Nikki has been my coordinator here in my visit and she has been um, uh, perfect in her support of, of whatever would be helpful for me in emails, in calling me, in, in every way facilitating my stay here. And I know it isn't just her, but really all of you. <coughs> this, um, I don't know if you can um, see that well. Uh, uh, maybe I'll put some things behind it. Okay, well, this is Arden Peters and this is Warren DeWitt and they're, they're standing, they're standing in um, aisle at Walmart. So, this is Arden Peters who's this sort of bent down older guy. They, they're probably in their 70s, they look like their 70s or their 80s. And Arden Peters says, I first met Warren in Walmart. They've got a little restaurant where you can drink coffee. My wife and I used to go mornings. One day I went alone because my wife was sick. Warren came over and asked after her. I told him she had Alzheimer's and just wasn't in a mental state to go. He sat down and started talking. That was years ago. At the time I thought I would take care of my wife on my own. But it got to the point that someone had to be there 24 hours. Warren volunteered. He helped take care of the home and did the cooking. I just don't know what I would have done without him. My wife is gone now, and now we're back at Walmart. We do the shopping together. We work together. It makes me feel useful. Warren DeWitt says, that's Walmart where we met three years ago. One thing led to another. He needed help, so I started staying there nights. And I've been staying there now for the last year and a half. I don't know how to explain it. I just wanted to be around. That day we were buying Tide. Mrs. Peters was still al alive then, and we did everything to keep her bed clean. These days, Arden goes with me, but I'm the one buying things for the house. I don't mind, I enjoy being with him, no matter what we're doing. He's my best friend. So beautiful. Just that, that one question, oh, where's your wife? That, that just initial moving out could bring about such a beautiful friendship. <coughs> So the Buddha, the Buddha said um, when we contemplate giving um, that, um, that we can, that there's some traditional contemplations. One is that when we die, we can't take our possessions with us. 
but secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, that um, wholesome and skillful actions bring good results. That we should consider our possessions shared in common. That we should consider being generous in our everyday speech. And we should consider the abundance we have. Specifically, he said, to when we want to increase um, or support the conditions to give, we should connect with the wish to give. We should stay connected with this wish as we give the gift. We should feel happy when we give the gift. And then we should contemplate our generosity after we have given the gift. And I say this. Um, I say this because this kind of goes against what we've been taught. Well, you know, it's sort of like what we've been taught is you give and you don't talk about giving and you don't contemplate the fact that you've given because then you're going to feel, uh, then it seems like you're being too proud. But this is what the Vasudhimaga says. It, it, it said, so it is said, when a person is truly wise, her or his constant task will surely be the recollection of her or his giving. Isn't that beautiful? So we've talked about the giving of our practice. Um, <laughs> I recently went to a a workshop in nonviolent communication by Marshall Rosenberg. I, I know I've said this to some of you. I loved, I love nonviolent communication. I love it second to the Dharma. I think it's radical and revolutionary, and I support all of you to go on the web immediately and to download stuff on nonviolent communication. Anyway, um, that's the byline. Um, <laughs> At the end, and I, this isn't unusual to that, but, uh, to this workshop, but at the end, Marshall Rosenberg talked about um, the gift of appreciative speech. And he said, and we know this, um, that often we don't take the opportunity to appreciate each other. Um, in the workshop, we had tackled, uh, at the end of the day, uh, workshop, we had tackled difficult political situations. How do you practice nonviolent speech in difficult political situations? I was um, the executive of Monsanto, and some people were coming to me and trying to get me to stop sending seeds that don't reproduce to um, Africa. So we, there was some sort of tension in this, in the different role playings we were doing. And then we went into appreciative speech. And he invited us to appreciate um, even people we didn't know, just by acknowledging them in the workshop, or if we, we had meals with different people through the workshop, if we happened to talk with someone. And I'm saying this because it struck me so profoundly, the change in energy from doing the exercise we were doing to people going around and saying thank you to each other. Uh, the previous day I had seen someone standing alone and had gone up to her and said, 
something which I can't even remember now. And she had come up to me right afterwards and said, you know, and I didn't know this, I was sort of feeling kind of lonely standing there by myself and I wasn't sure what to do. And you just came over and said hi and I wanted to say thank you. And it was such a beautiful moment because even though I didn't know this woman and I wasn't going to see her again, in that moment we felt such a deep friendship with each other. And that's what appreciation does. And the Buddha says that this is one of the greatest gifts we can give in our speech is appreciation. Speech that is kind and loving and appreciative. So um, another gift we can give, and we've been practice, practicing this today, is the gift of sharing the merit. That we understand that whatever we cultivate in our practice, we can give away. But more than that, we can actually share the merit almost continuously through what we receive and what we acknowledge in our lives. So um, I have two stories about showers because I love water, I'm a water baby. And um, so whenever anyone mentions water or showers, my ears perk up. Um, <laughs> and um, the, the first story is from Evelyn Eaton, who most of you know I trained with. She was my first spiritual teacher, a part Native American Indian pipe woman. And I trained with her in the Lone Pine on the other side of the Sierras in California. And she said that um, whenever she was under a shower, that she would take the water and sprinkle it out and um, send blessings with that sprinkle to all the animal beings and plant beings and um, uh, spirit beings in the world. Every time she had a shower, she shared the blessings of that shower. And the Dalai Lama's blessing um, was to acknowledge in showering that every time he used water, he was actually supporting the damming of wild rivers. And so he said even when he was in a place where there was plenty of water, he had very short showers because he wanted to make sure that some rivers ran wild and free. So beautiful. That's a different way of sharing the blessing. We shared the blessing with the food that we ate, um, just in that wish. I know that you, for those of you who are oldie moldies, you've heard so many times um, that refrain, that if we knew the blessings and the merit and the healing of sharing a meal with another, we would never eat without inviting someone to our table. So beautiful. For those of you in the, tradi the Jewish tradition, that is a practice of the Sabbath, that you don't ever have a Sabbath without eat inviting someone to your Sabbath table. Luckily for me, um, I happen to be one of those people that gets invited a lot. <laughs> I get to experience the blessings of that.
So what are the obstacles to giving? The, the first one is um, scarcity, feeling as though we don't have enough. Um, why, why would scarcity always be deluded? It doesn't come from a clear seeing. Scarcity is actually fear. And fear never sees the truth of a situation. Fear is an, is an expression of aversion. And aversion only sees what's deficient and negative. So when we're in fear, we actually never see the reality of a situation. Scarcity comes from a misperception of what's really going on. We uh, experience obstacles because of the belief systems in our family about giving. For example, people on welfare are lazy. People on the street should just get a job. Every person, I think this is particularly American, every person should look after themselves and not expect a dole out. I was really amazed um, when one of my um, previous um, one of my previous lovers was um, came from a very poor family, and um, she and she never she never gave to her family because um, their the value in their family was you take care of yourself, and and um, and that's that's the culture. Um, another is that often we can't receive. We can't receive, and so it's very hard to give. I don't know about you, but um, it's really amazing to me sometimes how hard it is to open and to really take in an appreciation or a blessing or a thank you. I notice myself how easy it is to deflect it and not to really take it in as a nurturance. And when we can't take it in, then it's very difficult to give. We also don't give because we fear that we're being codependent. We feel that our giving is somehow part of the feeling inside of ourselves that we're not good enough. That it's, that it's an expression of our own inadequacy. And because we feel inadequate, we feel compelled to give as a way to feel adequate. And so giving actually doesn't feel healing. It actually feels in some way as though it hurts us. Sometimes we give because we're angry. Here, you take this. <laughs> Or we give, we give as a favor. I'll give you this if you give me that. That really describes the political system pretty well. We give out of fear. We're scared not to give. You know, in some cultures, it's like, listen, I can't believe you didn't give to this charity. You know, you should give to this charity. For I, I, um, I notice I belong to the UU Church, and um, 
you know, and I notice how sometimes, you know, the plate goes round and everyone's looking to see how much did you give. So then some people may feel compelled to give more than they genuinely feel because there's that feeling of should. Or we give because we want a good reputation. So, um, um, the, um, the deepest reason we don't give is because we are blinded into the delusion or blinded into the dynamic that holding on is what takes care of ourselves. Clutching or holding on is the way that we love ourselves, is the way that we protect ourselves. And it's so seductive, isn't it? It's so seductive. And yet, there is this invitation that says the more we let go, the more we actually create karmic conditions for wealth. That generosity is the condition for great wealth. We don't know when that wealth will come. It might not even come in this lifetime. But the Buddha is very clear on this. He says, virtue creates the conditions for comfort and wealth in our lives. And so the very thing we feel we should do to take care of ourselves, you know, is actually bringing about poverty. It's quite profound. Here's um, one of my favorite stories about clinging and letting go. I cannot clean my own house, it has become to some extent no longer my own house. It has slipped from my control, a very good thing since Celia takes far better care of it than I would have done in the days when my arms and legs still worked. She cleans between all the buttons on the antiquated push-button stove so that our fingers no longer stick and release with a schloop every time we want to go from hot to warm. She keeps the sliding glass door so clean that after my daughter walked through and shattered it, we had to paste a hedgehog decal onto the new one to ward off further incursions. But she does not know where things belong, like the fish-shaped soup tureen on the sideboard. Although this should be placed sideways, she invariably points its pouty face out into the room. At first, I turn it back after she left. Later, when I got too weak, I'd simply look at it and fret at length. Uh, uh, simply look at it and fret. At length, insight struck. Oh, wait a minute. Whose fish is this anyway? It's mine, I know. When my... Um, Friend Molly left Tucson. She gave it to me to hold until her return. 
but she li liked Seattle better, and I've got the fish by default. But it's Celia's fish too. She's the one who takes care of it, and apparently it should stare out at us brutally, even though I think it looks dopey that way. To relinquish not merely control, but the claim to control, permitting someone to do what she does best in the way she chooses to do it, and viewing the outcome as collaborative rather than right or wrong, balances a relationship that might otherwise be skewered by issues of ownership or prerogative. Celia and I have a hollow cream-colored stoneware fish. If you want to help with its upkeep, you may have it too. Mm -hmm. If no one drops it, it will outlast both Celia and me. One day, however, it's bound to be smashed and then no one will have it anymore. Things come to us and we cherish them for a while and then they or we are gone. When Jesus says you cannot serve both God and Mammon, it's not the thingness of our possessions he repudiates, but our relationship to them, the way that instead of simply tending them and putting them to use, we grasp them with knuckles, turned white, clasp them against our chests, invest them with the power to represent our worth. I really am appreciative of one of the traditions that is so central to the Mahayana and Zen lineages, and that is the tradition of the Bodhisattva. Not only because of the obvious blessings of that practice, but because of what it does for us in our own individual practice. And I've really watched a shift in my own practice over the years as more and more that has become a calling for me, which is to practice for others and not just for myself. And what that means as I encounter difficulties in my own practice, because before the tendency was oh my God, you know, here I am again working with X, Y, and Z, or um, um, oh, this is being so long and tedious, and when is it going to stop? Or, you know, the usual aversions um, that we get caught up with in our challenge, uh, um, in our practice. But when, but when we're able to dedicate our practice deeply to the welfare of others, when we encounter difficulties, it's not so bad because we know that the difficulty is held in the generosity of giving. And somehow it breaks the contraction that's part of the difficulty. Here's a story just about, about that. My next door neighbor, Jessie, died at home of colon cancer 25 years ago. When I visited him just days before he died, he explained, pointing to the bottles and hypodermic needles arranged on his bedside table, that because he was a physician, he was in charge of his own pain control. 
This is morphine, he said, and I give it to myself when the pain gets too terrible. He paused and looked at me as if considering whether or not to go on. Sometimes, he said, I think about killing myself. I could, you know, it would be easy. I could just take too much morphine. Each time I get ready to do it, though, I think of someone else I need to tell something to. I have a friend in Atlanta with a new business, and I have some good ideas for him. And my nephew in LA has marriage problems. I think I could help him. Sometimes I can't think of one more thing I need to do, but then I think I might, so I don't do it. I recall that as Jesse and I visited, I was thinking about how kind he was to be remembering his friends and their needs in the last days of his own life. I still remember him as kind, of course, but now I also think Jesse was very lucky. What a relief it must have been for him to fill his mind with ideas about what he could do, rather than with the sad stories about dying. The Buddha said that the benefits of giving include earning the love of others, cementing friendships, winning the sympathy of others, our good reputation spreads, we can attend gatherings with confidence, we win popularity, noble people want to associate with us. We have the satisfaction of fulfilling ourselves. And these conditions include <coughs> the giving continuing. He said the conditions for giving to increase also included belief in the possibility of freedom and continually taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Because when we believe freedom is possible, then we know that giving increases the possibility of freedom we continue to give. When we know that our whole life is dedicated to the healing of our being and the healing of the world, then we know that giving is an essential part of that and giving becomes not just a practice, but giving is an expression of our being. Here's another way to talk about it. Last night, as I was sleeping, I dreamt marvelous error that a spring was breaking out in my heart, I said, along with which, along which secret aqueduct, O oh water, are you coming to me, water of a new life that I have never drunk? Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt marvelous error that I had a beehive here inside my heart, 
and the golden bees were making white combs and sweet honey from my old failures. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt marvelous error that a fiery sun was giving light inside my heart. It was fiery because I felt warmth as from a heart, and sun because it gave light and brought tears to my eyes. Last night as I slept, I dreamt marvelous error that it was God I had here inside my heart. When we come to see that we are God or angels or Buddha nature, then we come to give boundlessly. May we all be blessed with the deepest faith in giving. In this way, may all the places where our hearts abound and constricted be relieved. May giving support the unfolding into freedom. May each one of us here be able to receive the giving we give each other. Thank you. So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.